0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm delighted to have you with me today. And I pray that today's episode is a blessing and it's thought-provoking for you and for any of those with whom you might share this podcast. I think today we're going to be covering some things that are way too often neglected within the knowledge of God, our theology, and our worldview that, to be honest, were neglected in in all the churches that I attended of various stripes and denominations throughout the whole of my life. And so uh, what we're going to cover today is very, very important. And it is this idea of covenants and the place and importance of covenants, not just in our theology as an abstract sort of thing, but in our day-to-day lives and what we as Christians should be doing if we're going to actually do the work that God is doing and join in it. Now, last week is a bit of a refresher. You'll recall that I quoted Dutch theologian Herman babbitt uh, to call attention to the prevalence and the pervasiveness of covenants throughout history in our relationships with one another. He said all higher forms of life operate through covenants. And I noted the existence of those. For example, our Constitution and language in our Constitution and throughout the common law. But, as I also noted, and this is important, they're pervasive not just because we found them to be practical or they've proved to be beneficial to have covenants and contracts and mutual promises and obligations. But it's because our God is a covenant-making God. Even within the Trinity itself, which we will look at today, because it's the foundation for everything. The Trinity is the starting point for all our thinking about God and the world in which we live. So, we're going to look at that in a bit. And now, let me tell you where this is going to go, not just today, but next week. Today, we'll be laying a foundation about the nature of covenants that we will then talk about what that means uh, next week in regard to living by faith and what our faith is in and what we should be doing. And I will try to use that then in connection with. Understanding the 15-week federal uh, abortion ban that's being bantied about um, by some pro-life organizations as being the next thing pro-lifers need to be doing, and I just don't think that's the case, and I'll explain why. But today is laying the foundation for why that 15-week federal abortion ban, meaning you can't do an abortion after 15 weeks of gestation, is a breach of covenant. With the American people. So I hope you'll bear with me as we go through today and set up next week and what we cover next week. But because of what I said last week, what Bobbick said, if we don't understand what covenant about is in Scripture, then we don't know what God is doing, which means we won't know what we should be doing by faith. And in our ignorance about what we should be doing, when the the light of truth finally dawns on us as it has been doing the last several years in my own life, we're going to find that we may have been kicking against the pricks, so to speak, or, or fighting against God in such a way that he is bringing about discipline upon us, which is often done by the godless coming to power and essentially taking the proverbial paddle or rod of discipline to God's people to straighten them out. And that's, to be honest, where I think we are in this country. But, but I want to say here and interject here that when that light of dawning comes and we see that we have not been faithful to the covenant of God, that our work has not been consistent with the law of faith and the covenant of God, the re- proper response is not to redouble our efforts, but to repent. Now you may recall that when the people of Israel realized what God was going to do because they had not had faith to take the promised land, they all said, oh, we'll, we'll go tomorrow. And he, and Moses said, no, don't go. You're working against God. He's already decreed that you're going to fall in the wilderness and and the land will go to those that you were afraid would die, your children. So it's not that we need to... Just redouble our efforts. The way to life is not to work harder, but to repent and allow God to work in us. So, in other words, what I'm saying is this this subject of covenant can can be no light or trivial thing. Yet, as I suggested last week, look for a worldview book that's popular today, among today's more notable and popular worldview authors, and see if there's anything, a chapter, on covenants as being a key element of a biblical worldview. And if you have one or you found one, please email me and let me know. My email is at info at f-a-c-t-n org. That's info at f-a-c-t-n org. Because I'd like to check that book out. Well, with that as a, a, a bit of a refresher, let's... Now, turn back to A.W. Pink and his book on the Divine Covenants, which, again, I noted, you can find at monergism.com. One of the things that he said that I quoted last week, I want to come back to because of its importance to this idea, that if we don't know what the covenants are doing, we won't know what we should be doing. And he said this, The covenants quote, treat the divine side of things, and here's what he means, disclosing the source from which all blessings come to men and making known the channel, Christ, through which they flow to them. So to remove from our consideration and our work, and our, quote, acts of faith, thoughts of the covenant, is is to forego all the blessings that come to men, and not to understand the way in which those blessings come to us, which he notes is through Christ, not through our works, lest any man could boast. Now, Such a statement may seem strange. It may be new to you to hear that all the blessings of men today still come through covenant and through Christ. But consider what Romans 11.36 says, that all things are from him, through him. There's the, the channel, the covenant, and we're going to look at the eternal covenant, and Jesus Christ through him and to him. And it's not just that we go do things that we offer to him, but all things come back to him. If at any point in this chain of progress, from the beginning and the middle and its ending point, we lose connection with the covenant and the Christ of the covenant and lose sight of the eternal covenant that we'll look at, then we are severed from God. So our beginning, our middle, and our end, our telos, must all be connected to God, or we're severed from God at some point. And as it says in Colossians 1.17, He's not just before all things, but in Him all things consist. In other words, it's, it's what the Apostle Paul said on Mars Hill, that it's in Him we live and move and have our being. So to be severed from the covenant that God has made with men Which must be made because otherwise the distance, as Babak said, between the two of us, the distance, not just in terms of space or time, but in terms of being is so great that we would we could be nothing more, as we said last week, than than masters and servants. There could be no blessedness, there could be no communion and real fellowship. So again, that's why covenant is so important. To depart from the covenant is to depart from the source of our being, and that necessarily leads to death. That's the wage of departing from God's covenant. Now, Pink adds something else important right after that. He says, Each one, and here he was referring to the the visible covenants, as revealing something that's on the divine side. okay, Like all creation is revealing the glory of God. And so these covenants are revealing the divine side of things. And he says, they reveal some new and fundamental aspect of truth and in considering them in their scriptural order, which is what we're going to do in just a moment we may clearly perceive the progress of Revelation, which they respectively indicated. They set forth the great design of God accomplished by the Redeemer of his people. Now that word, the progress of Revelation, which they respectively indicated, we're going to look at some scripture verses in just a moment. But in much of the church today, among the people of God, there is a break in the progression of Revelation. There's a break between the Old and the New Testament, between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God under the New Testament. There's not a continuation of any kind. There's progress, then a stop, then a new thing, then there's progress, then a stop, and then go back to the old thing. He goes on to say, Since the covenants pertain unto the very rudiments of the doctrine of Christ. That's important. If you want to understand Christ, Christ has to be placed in the context of covenants. So again, not to understand the concept of covenant in the Bible is to not really know Christ as we ought to know Christ. There is a level of maturity then that we are lacking. And he says, consequently, ignorance of them must cause obscurity to rest upon the whole gospel system. And friends, that was my life. There was a lot of stuff that just didn't seem to fit or to make sense, and things kind of didn't come together, but I, I wasn't given the tool by which they came together. And if you'll recall, I noticed last week in uh, Sinclair Ferguson's book on John Owen, that covenants became the means by which to interpret what God is doing as well as our own subjective experience of God. And that's what's been lost. So again, the point I made at the beginning, not to understand what God is doing in these covenants is to not know what we should be doing. Now, I'm going to repeat something else here before I get to talking about these covenants in order, uh, which which Pink says we need to consider them in order as a progressive revelation. You'll recall that Pink said last week that not understanding the concept of covenant quote, made it easier for certain men to shuffle scripture until they arranged the passages on the covenants to arbitrarily divide time and partitioned off the Bible accordingly. Well, that's exactly where Andy Stanley is, isn't it? We don't really need the Old Testament. That's not relevant for the church today. And it is essentially a Gnostic view of the Scripture. It's a Gnostic view of Christianity because in the Old Testament, we are given a historical perspective of things, of God's progression of revelation in time and in space. And so when we reject the Old Testament, we are becoming Gnostic. When we say we should not pay attention to the Old Testament, or the Old Testament is for a, a period of time to be resumed later, we're escaping from history. We're escaping from the real life of the world today, and we're Gnostic. And I hate to say it, when you stop and really think about what you often hear in churches, it's very gnostic, and of course that presents problems, doesn't it? Because if you're supposed to escape history and and um, temporal time and space, then what are you supposed to be doing when the government's doing crazy things all of a sudden you're you're being called to be unspiritual to get engaged in those things because the spiritual thing is escaping history, and now what do you do? It's just a terrible conflict, and it's because my friends. We don't know God and God in the context of his eternal covenant purposes. And with that, let's turn to this idea of covenants throughout time. Pink writes, The word of God opens with a brief account of creation, the making of man and his fall. From later scripture, we have no difficulty in ascertaining that the issue of the trial to which man was subjected in Eden had been divinely foreseen. Quoting Revelation 13.8, Pink writes, The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This, Pink says, makes it clear that in view of the fall, provision had been made by God for the recovery of his people who had apostatized in Adam. Adam was our representative head. And because Adam was our representative head, we might say, well, that's unfair. I didn't do anything to participate in this pollution of of human nature and the, the cosmos. But because of representation, it is possible that Christ, as a new head, can save us by representation. And not have to save us all, as you might say, individually and die millions and millions of times. So he goes on to say that the means whereby their recovery from sin would be effective were consistent with the claims of divine holiness and justice. All the details and results of the plan of mercy had been arranged and settled from the beginning by divine Wisdom. Now, we're going to look at that from the beginning, which is the eternal covenant he's referencing there in just a moment. But let's continue this progression of temporal covenants in time and space. That provision of grace, which God made for his people before the foundation of the world, embraced the appointment of his own son to become the mediator between God and man. See, we were cut off from God because we had fallen away from the covenant that was our means to have fellowship to God. And not just to be the mediator, Pink writes, but of the work which in that capacity as mediator, he, the son, should perform. Now, what I just wrote there about the provision of grace before the foundation of the world And what I'll read uh, from his book in just a moment is what Pink calls the eternal covenant, which is something I never heard taught or explained on a Sunday morning in my 60-plus years of church. Maybe I missed the day in which all the various churches happened to talk about it. But even in Bobbing's day, in the early 1900s, he said the covenant in general was not emphasized. It lost its place of importance. So anyway, this is Pink's description of the eternal covenant. And when you put scripture together as a whole, you'll see it, particularly in the latter half of Isaiah and in the Psalms. And here's how Pink describes the eternal covenant that is within the triune work of God. This, he says, involved his assumption of human nature, of course, referring there to the Son of God. The offering of himself as a sacrifice for sin his exaltation in the nature he had assumed to the right hand of God in the heavenlies, his supremacy over his church and over all things for his church, a clear reference there to Ephesians chapter one, the blessings which he should be empowered to dispense and the extent to which his work should be made effectual under the salvation of souls. And of course, what he's referring there to is the work of the Holy Spirit, so there we have, in the triune God, this idea of a covenant. The Father wants a people for himself. And he's planned for that in anticipation of the fall by Jesus taking on our human nature and agreeing that in doing so, he would um, make an atonement for sin so that the Father could have the people that he desired, that he would be exalted, in his nature as human, to the right hand of God, which Ephesians tells us has happened, that he would be supreme over his church and over all things for his church, which Ephesians also tells us, and that the Holy Spirit would come to extend the blessings that Christ has purchased for us and um, make them effectual in God's people. Now, that idea of what Christ has purchased for us was a strange one to me. But all of our blessings come from Christ because of this covenant. There is no righteousness in and of ourselves. Pink goes on. The first germinal publication of the everlasting covenant is found in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, he he goes on, having now talked about this everlasting covenant, uh, the covenant with Adam is being breached in the garden, and this promise of a seed that would destroy the serpent. Pink now says, God made covenants with Noah, Abraham, and David. But were they, as fallen creatures, able to enter into covenant with their august and holy maker? Now the answer to that is clearly no, which is why some people then reject the whole doctrine of covenants, that God couldn't have really made covenants with them because um, they were imperfect. They had no bargaining power with God. But when we see that all covenants are a gracious gift of God, not earned or merited, but bestowed then that problem goes away. But Pink continues Were they able to stand for themselves or be sureties for others? The very question answers itself. What, for instance, could Noah possibly do which would ensure that the earth should never again be destroyed by flood? The clear answer is nothing. Those subordinate covenants were nothing less than the Lord's making manifest in an especial and public manner. The Grand Covenant, which was the covenant between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the everlasting, the eternal covenant, making known something of its glorious contents, the, the contents of the covenant within the Trinity, and confirming their own personal interest in it. In other words, the interest that Noah and Abraham and David had in this covenant, of God for the redemption of his people. And it was the means by which he assured them that Christ, the great covenant head, should be of themselves and spring from their seed. Which is what we find in Hebrews, right? Where he says, look, he didn't take on the nature of angels. Angels were spiritual beings and they fell or they didn't fall. But man is a spiritual and material being. And he was redeemable, so God took on the nature of man to be that mediator. Now Pink continues. This is what accounts for that singular expression which occurs so frequently in Scripture. Quoting Genesis nine nine, he says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your seed after you. And I would notice here that he that in Galatians chapter three, verse sixteen, Paul emphasizes the word seed meant the singular seed, the seed being Christ, the one who would spring from their seed and be of their nature. But Pink continues, Yet there follows no mention of any conditions or work to be done by them, only a promise of unconditional blessing. And why was that? Because the conditions were to be fulfilled and the work was to be done by Christ. And nothing remained but to bestow the blessings on his people. So when David says, he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, citing Samuel 23, 5, he simply means God had admitted him into an interest in the everlasting covenant and made him partaker of its privileges. Hence it is that when the Apostle Paul refers to the various covenants which God had made with men in the Old Testament times, he styles them not covenants of stipulations, but covenants of promise. Those divine revelations and manifestations of the grace decreed in the everlasting covenant were given out at important epochs in the early history of the world. Just as Genesis 3.15 was given immediately after the fall, so we find that immediately following the flood, God solemnly renewed the covenant of grace with Noah. In like manner, at the beginning of the third period of human history, following the call of Abraham, God renewed it again, only then making a much fuller revelation of the same. It was now made known that the coming deliverer of God was to be of Abrahamic stock and that all the families of the earth should be blessed in him. In other words, in this seed, this person of Abrahamic stock. A plain intimation, Pink says, of the calling of the Gentiles and the bringing of the elect from all the nations into the family of God. In Genesis 15, 5 and 6, the great requirement of the covenant, namely faith, was then more fully made known. Well, I can see I'm at the 27 or 8 minute mark and I'm just not going to get to all the scripture verses that corroborate what Pink says. But I want you to know that next week they're coming because it doesn't matter one whit what A.W. Pink says if we can't find what he said in the scripture. And we will find in the scripture that we'll look at next week, exactly what God was doing in these covenants and the new creation that he has brought about that we are a part of, that we are called to further in our own work. So again, not to understand the covenant and what the covenants were pointing to, which we'll take up next week, they were pointing to more than just the salvation and escape from hell that we often picture the covenant is doing, well, then we won't know what we should be doing and what it means to live by faith. And so I hope you will join me next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.